Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe so you don't miss any future Leading Saints content. Hey everyone, this is the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankum. I will be your host. Now, I was uh, my wife and I have been doing this thing lately where we uh, every day we take turns sharing a specific podcast episode. It can be about anything on any podcast and and we both listen to it, and then it gives us something to discuss at the end of the day. We'll see how long this lasts, but it's been quite enjoyable. And she sent me this link to this podcast. It was a short one, and I listened to it. And I was like almost all the way done, and I was just thinking, I have no idea, like, what is the even the context of this podcast, or what is she talking about? What's the theme? And I was so lost. And so that's why at the beginning of every podcast episode, I always explain to you what this podcast is about. Because if you're brand new, if this is the first ever Leading Saints podcast you've listened to, you may not know what this is even about, so let me tell you. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And a big way that we do that is through this podcast where we interview different people or have unique discussions all about leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint. And we have a wonderful website, leadingsaints.org. Go there, check out an article. If you haven't been there in a while, maybe you've listened to this podcast for a while, but you haven't been to the website in a while, take some time to go there. There's some remarkable authors that are contributing content there that uh, will inspire you just as much as these podcasts inspire you. So this episode that you're about to hear, I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's a bit unique compared to the other type of episodes, uh, one being that I interview a non-Latter-day Saint, and I don't do that too often, not that I'm trying to avoid that, but obviously I like to interview people who already understand the, the world of being a Latter-day Saint and wards and stakes and quorums and relief societies and those things and all the unique leadership dynamics that come with that structure. But I reached out to Michael Brody Waite, and he has written a book called Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts. And I thought this would be a perfect person to invite on to have a discussion about creating authenticity in our culture, in our organizational cultures, whether it's a quorum or relief society or a ward. Because over the last year or so, I've talked a lot about this concept of being authentic and being real and being raw and what that looks like. And I've had gotten a few interview or a, sorry, a few emails back from people saying, Kurt, I get it. Okay. I get it. I want to be an authentic leader. I'm an elders quorum president. I want to do that. I'm a release side president. I'm ready to go. But what on earth does that look like? How do I do that? What's the application? What's the day-to-day, the week-to-week look like? And after I uh, randomly came across Michael's book and read it, I thought, this guy gets it. He has figured out how to link the world of authenticity that is a big part of recovering from an addiction and the world of leadership. And so it's a powerful discussion and one that I hope you appreciate. If you're coming to this thinking, oh yeah, I work with addicts and I want to help addicts overcome or reach recovery, that's not what this episode is about, but you need to keep listening because I've found in my own journey 
as I built more relationships and connections with recovering addicts, I've realized that we're all recovering from the addiction of the natural man. We're all recovering and trying to progress. And these principles, which addicts have have put into place, I mean, they're gospel principles at their roots. They need to be more active in both our personal life and leading ourselves, and in our leadership life, in our callings and, and so forth. So hope you like it. This is my interview with Michael Brody Waite, the author of Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, How to Lead Like Your Life Depends On It. Today, I have the opportunity to chat with Michael Brody Wayatt, the author of Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts. How are you, Michael? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is uh, really fun. I came across, I'm trying to think what podcast I was listening to that you were interviewed on, but nonetheless, I found you somewhere. And I think it was a random one that I don't typically listen to. And I was sort of intrigued by your story. You know, we talk a lot about addiction, you know, in, in on leading saints, just uh, as we strive to help those that are wrestling with addiction and helping them find recovery. And and so I was intrigued by, obviously, we're a leadership podcast, and then you're talking about addiction as well. So I thought, man, we got to, I'd love to listen to this. And I, and I loved your story and, and your recovery. And it was very inspiring and, and which will lead to some principles we'll talk about. So Michael, I first have to ask you, you're not a Latter-day Saint, but everybody who I have on the podcast who doesn't have a Latter-day Saint background, I have to ask if there's any like awkward or weird or, or any connections whatsoever. It can be funny. It can be awkward. It can just be normal that you have with Latter-day Saints. Yeah, I, I actually do have an awkward, funny connection. I'd be happy to share. So oh, awesome. um, I have a whole part of my family tree that are Latter-day Saints. And and so I rem- and they, li- they live in Utah. And when I would go visit them, and so they were my cousins, one of them got the opportunity to date my football idol, like my national football league idol. I won't say who it is because I don't want to like go into the specifics, but Okay. <laughs> a, I have my team. I'll say I'm a San Francisco 49er fan. Okay. It was one of the stars of the 49ers. He uh-huh. asked her out. It was like a dream come true for me. And then she said no. <laughs> what? And he, you know, and, and he was a Latter-day Saint and she was a Latter-day Saint and she was single. And so I just couldn't wrap my brain around like, he's an attractive dude. She's an attractive gal. Like, it just it made so much sense and it just devastated me as a child that i could have been i could my cousin could have been dating my uh my football idol and and really for where she was in her life and the way that things go probably would have married him if she started dating him but you yeah. know, as a result she robbed me of my childhood dream <laughs> and yeah. at the same time she found her 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 mate and she has a great life but uh, yeah, yeah was, as uh, did he as well as far as i i'm aware so yes they both yes. found good lives but yes. man it could have really been a cool but it, life but, it, right? but, it, but mine really went off the rails i mean we're going to talk about drug addiction that is why i'm kidding that's not why. no <laughs> that's but, where it all began right <laughs> yeah that's that's that was the <laughs> no. big that's when i took my first drink um, yeah, awesome yeah, but awesome well uh that that's great. I think that that ranks up there one of the best I've heard from non Latter Day Saint guests we've had on the podcast. So that's pretty cool. So just maybe tell us your story. Obviously, the book is about your story, and then then principles that you learned from that, which you applied in a successful business career. So maybe for the next few minutes, just uh, lead us down sort of the abbreviation of of your story, and it'd be interesting to hear. Sure. So from California, I grew up in Northern California, then Southern California. And I don't really have anything remarkable to share regarding my childhood, a pretty average childhood in in many regards. But in college, I distinctly remember my freshman year, one night having an exchange with one of my good friends and 
completely getting emotional and like getting upset and like storming out. And it was over like nothing. It was like, Hey, can you pass me a cup? And I like lost all of my marbles over like someone saying, can you pass me a cup? And so I remember going back to my dorm and crying and saying, I just don't know how to deal with life on life's terms. I didn't say it that way. I said something like, I don't think I got the instructions for how to deal with life, but my own emotions were surprising and scary to me. And I felt like I didn't have what it took to deal with life. And I remember that the the mini fridge was full of beer. And so I, that was like the first time that I drank alone. And it was not too far after that, I saw a Lifetime movie about a guy that was an alcoholic. Now, I've got a tip for all you parents out there that ha- may suspect that you've got the addiction gene. Hmm. If you have a child and you are scared that you passed your genetic material for addiction down to your child, do not do what my parents did. In high school, they sat me down and they said, you probably have the gene for addiction. So whatever you do, do not drink and do not use drugs. If you think that your child might be an addict, the last thing you want to do is tell them what not to do because that's going to be the first thing that they want to do. And so I sat there. And so I say that like a little tongue in cheek, but it was serious. My dad's a a recovering alcoholic and I'm sitting there and I'm feeling overwhelmed by life. And I watched this Lifetime movie of this drunk. And to me, his life was my dream. He was numb all the time. He didn't have all these feelings that were making him really confused. And so I was like, you know what? I don't know how to be like this academic person. I don't know how to be this athlete. I don't know how to be all these. I think that I can be a drunk. And I know it's a really weird thing to say, but it was a way of me trying to control my experience. And so that's when I started using alcohol and drugs with a specific intent to stay as numb as possible and mute all my emotions so that I had some control over what was going on in my life. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And I appreciate the, the emphasis on that numbing process because I think a lot of, you know, people who've not experienced addiction, they sort of see like, man, there's just something about the alcohol or the drugs or whatever it is that, that makes them want it more. But really it's that you're numbing feelings and, and maybe even trauma that you've experienced, right? Yeah. I actually, now that I'm a recovering addict, I have a theory around what drives addiction. And I think that we have an obsessive compulsive variant that specifically focuses on wanting to be able to predict how we're going to feel. As an addict, I would actually choose to use drugs that made me feel bad over risking taking a drug where I don't know what's going to happen and it could make me feel good or make me feel bad. Yeah. I wanted to be able to control my experience. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of crazy. I chose to feel good for a while by being numb felt good as contrast. But after a while, I would choose to feel bad because life on life's terms is one big crapshoot. It's one big, you know, roll of the dice and you don't know what you're going to experience emotionally. At least this way I could predict and control how I was going to feel. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so where did that lead from there? You know, I got called by Lifetime to do a movie with them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so by my junior year of college, I had like one year's worth of credits and essentially I started a really significant downturn where in the summer of 2002, I had been kicked out of college. I'd been kicked out of my house. I've been fired from my job. My car had been repossessed and I was throwing up blood at the age of 23. And when I looked in the mirror, I knew that I would not be alive on my 30th birthday. I might not even be alive on my 25th. And frankly, to me, that didn't sound too bad because I was completely baffled on how to deal with life and life's terms. And I just assumed that that was my lot in life. 
And then, you know, one of the things that was happening was I couldn't provide for myself. So I, I, my buddy had let me sleep on his couch and one weekend turned into like three months of me completely overstaying my welcome. My way of showing gratitude to him was when he would go to work, I would drink his alcohol, eat his food, steal his drugs, steal his money and bring strangers over to his house to like wreck his house. And so I knew I was wearing my wel- wearing out my welcome. I was at the Venice beach. And so if I wasn't staying at his house, I was going to be living on the street because I was homeless and I didn't want that. And I remember every couple of weeks, my dad would come and take me to breakfast, which would be like 4 PM for me. Um, and he would take me to breakfast and he said that he just wanted to buy me a meal, but I knew it's because he wanted to be able to see that his son was still alive as a new parent, like makes me think about my daughter and my son and all that kind of stuff. But he wanted to confirm and lay eyes on me and make sure that I was alive. And he would still offer, you know, hey, we'll send you to rehab. And I would always tell him I didn't have a problem. Eventually, my buddy where I was staying, he started talking me into going to rehab. I think he was tired of me stealing from him and eating his food and drinking his alcohol, but he loved me so much he wasn't going to kick me out. At the same time, I saw the writing on the wall. And so I chose to go to rehab so that I could have 28 days worth of shelter and food. And so I went to rehab and I woke up at the Betty Ford Center in Rancho Mirage, California, September 1st, 2002. And I haven't used a drop of alcohol, a drug and or a cigarette since. Wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then from there, you... Was it there in the rehab that you were first introduced to like a 12-step model of recovery? Yeah. Yeah. They, they taught, they, they introduced me to the 12-step model and 12-step program. And then when I got out of rehab, I went to a 12-step program and I joined it and I'm still active to this day. So I've been in a 12-step program for over 17 years. And if I were to distill down what I learned that completely transformed my life, it's three principles that I learned in recovery. The first one is practice rigorous authenticity. We are taught these days, especially for those of us that are leaders, that we should be authentic, but nobody actually does it. Like we all talk about that one time that we kept it real, but like people are not rigorously authentic. Like no matter what the stakes are, no matter if the customer's in the room, I mean, it does, if the romantic relationship's on the line, being true to ourselves in word and action, no matter what, no matter what the consequence is, we don't know how to do that. I mean, when was the last time you heard a politician answer a question with, I don't know. Right. Like, yeah. We don't have rigorous authenticity in leadership. So I was taught that I had to practice rigorous authenticity. And so the way that I like to phrase this is they taught me how to take off the different masks that I was wearing. Now I know we're in a pandemic and I'm not talking about physical masks. I'm talking right. about the thousands <laughs> of leaders over the thousands of years that have hid their true selves in order to be quote unquote strong as leaders. And I was taught to hide myself as an addict. And the only difference between me and a leader was I was chasing the high and they're chasing success. But either way, I hid my true self. And so they taught me the principle of practicing rigorous authenticity. And so the next question is, well, so how do you do that? If we have all this great literature out there and all these great podcasts and, and books and stories and TED Talks and all that kind of stuff that say be authentic and we don't have authentic leaders and we don't have authenticity on social media. So how do you actually do that? And the key is the second principle that I was taught, surrender the outcome, surrender the outcome. We are not taught to surrender the outcome. Now, those of us with faith are taught to surrender and we are taught to surrender the outcome, but leaders are not. And so whether you are faithful 
or whether you're a recovering addict, what we learn is that we have to surrender, but at work, you need to obsess over the outcomes. You're responsible for the outcomes. You need to make sure everything goes your way. And so what ends up happening is most people waste a tremendous amount of energy in their professional endeavors, focusing on things that they can't control at the expense of the things that they can. A very simple example is a salesperson that's arguing about their quota or their territory or their products versus the one going out and making phone calls. We waste an inordinate amount of money, time, and energy on things that we can't control. And surrendering the outcome sounds really simple, but it is so hard for people to do. But in recovery, we have to learn how to do it. That's why my book says, Great Leaders of Like Drug Addicts, How to Lead Like Your Life Depends on It. I didn't learn these principles to be a better leader, which we'll get into later. I learned these principles to live. So I had to surrender the outcome like my life depends on it. And that's very different than what most people are taught in the professional world. Yeah. The third principle. So then these first two principles aren't actual action. They aren't, what are you doing different in the world? So the third principle is do uncomfortable work. Now, most people say, Mike, I know how to do uncomfortable work. And what I say is if you're professional and you're saying that to me, it means you actually are a little misguided. You know how to do smart work and hard work. Those are physical hmm. and intellectual. Uncomfortable work is emotional. It's a completely different animal. It's a sensation in our body that deters us from taking action that's good for us. And so the example is like, how many of us have seen someone doing eight hours of hard work, avoiding five to 10 minutes of uncomfortable work? A really classic example of this is performance management of an employee or negotiating with a customer. A customer asks for a deadline that you can't do, a five-minute uncomfortable conversation saying you can't do it versus hours upon hours upon hours killing yourself trying to hit that deadline. We don't know how to do uncomfortable work. And so the really cool thing is in recovery, your life depends on uncomfortable work. And so these three principles aren't just independent. They work together. Principle one allows you to identify how am I hiding my true self when I'm practicing rigorous authenticity? Where am I hiding my true self? Where am I not being vulnerable? Where am I not being authentic? Principle two is surrender the outcome. How do I let go of what's going to happen if I'm vulnerable and I'm true to myself? How do I yeah. let go to that? Surrender the outcome. And then what's left is doing the uncomfortable work of being your true self in the world. But also there's a tremendous amount of um, leadership and business applications that I can go into where this translates into actually better outcomes in the professional world. But those are the three principles yeah. that I learned in recovery. No, that's really helpful. And I want to go back to the the first one uh, with you talk about masks and you know taking off the mask and and like you said that, uh, you know, when you were deep in your addiction, you were looking, always looking for your next high, right? Yep. And then you say, you know, in the business context, successful business people are always looking, you know, they're chasing that success, right? And I think what's helped me, you know, I've never experienced uh, addiction, you know, with the stigmas and, and things that, that we talk about addiction today. But what I've found interacting with recovering addicts is that it doesn't matter if you have a substance abuse or a sexual addiction or whatever it is like we're all chasing something and in that process of chasing something we're all tempted to wear a mask or to put on a, a pose in a certain way so that we can control the outcome of that yep. and it feels like that's necessary but a lot of times it's actually impeding us from obtaining what we what we're desiring right so we actually came across a stat that 85% of the things that we worry about never come true hmm. And so fear is what stops us from surrendering the outcome. Fear yeah. is what stops us from taking off the mask. And actually I've worked with, you know, so, I mean, we won't, don't have to go into it, but like, you know, in my recovery, I worked for a fortune 50 company as a leader. I founded my own company. That was an Inc 500 company that I sold to a publicly traded company. 
I've done a TED talk. I've written a book. I've, you know, I, I ran a nonprofit that helped 2000 entrepreneurs a year start or grow a business. And the thing that I've done is I created what I call a mask assessment. So you can actually use this assessment to identify which mask is holding you back. Which mask do you wear out of fear that's actually on, like holding back your potential? And in working with really big brands like Google and Dell and Global Payments or like startups or nonprofits, I've assessed over a thousand leaders anywhere from the boardroom to the mailroom to the classroom to the living room. And there are just four masks that are holding back every individual team and organization in this world. And so these four masks are saying yes when you could say no. The second one is hiding a weakness. Hmm. The third one is avoiding difficult conversations. And the fourth one is holding back your unique perspective. When I'm talking to groups wow. of 20, 200 or doing a speak engagement for 2000, I ask them if in the last, I ask them all to stand up and I say in the last 40 days, at last 30 days, if you have said yes, when you could say no, take a seat. And I go through the four, the room is always completely seated. And yeah. that isn't, those four things are not leadership. That's not leadership. That's being a right. follower. Right. And yeah. Everybody's yeah. doing them. And what we have found is it's costing people 500 hours a year just on these four masks, 500 hours a year. Like, what would you do if I, that was three months of like no meetings on your calendar. Like it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. if you can identify which of these masks are holding you back as a leader, you can then actually use these three principles to take it off and unlock those 500 hours. Yeah. Again, this is what I want to underscore and highlight is that there may be individuals that maybe saw the title of this interview and they think, oh yeah, you know, I'm working with different addicts and this would be good. It'll help me as a, as a bishop or an elders quorum president or as a leader you know, help those people. But again, in my journey, like it's been so helpful to see that we all have these addictive behaviors and habits. I, I mean, as far as coping mechanisms, you know, we may not be slipping away to the bar or addicted to pornography or whatever it is, but we're all posing and covering these masks up. And I love these four masks because it's so like, man, I probably in the last, you know, 24 hours, I've probably violated two of those at least, you know? But me too. That's yeah, how pervasive yeah. it is because we are all like, so basically what I argue in the book is that the reason that we don't have authentic leaders is we haven't diagnosed the problem appropriately. Our problem isn't that we should have authentic leaders. Our problem is that we're not acknowledging that we are dealing with an addiction, an addiction to the mask. Yes. We are all addicted to hiding ourselves. Think about how systemic and pervasive it is for every individual, whether you are a president or whether you are just at a cocktail party with your friends, how you are subtly always trying to manipulate the information that you share and what you say and do to manage perception. We are as addicted to the masks as an addict is addicted to the drugs. And that is why in my book, I take the tools that addicts use to recover and equip leaders with those same tools so that they can recover from their mask addiction. Yeah, that's powerful. And and I, what I appreciate about your story is that, you know, like you talk about it, an addiction is a a day-to-day, -day, you know, recovery, right? You can only focus on today. And so there's never this moment of where you think, okay, I'm going to make a conscious decision to put this mask on because this, this is really important. It's like so subtle. And in your book, you sort of talk about that when, when the company, you know, you hire certain people and the company begins to, to really go down and you say, I had gotten back to avoiding authenticity and I've been wearing masks and I just, I realized I needed to stop doing that. And that was sort of the turning point of saving that company you work with. So it's not a like one day you just think, yeah, I know masks aren't good, but I really need it for the next quarter, right? They just subtly right. creep back in life. 
No, it's, it's a daily, I mean, so I've got over 300 people now in our mastery program. And the thing I tell them is don't come here to be comfortable and don't come here for a quick win. This is about living differently and it's about recovering from the mask addiction. And the thing that is so hard for people to understand and well, okay. So for anyone working with addicts, we know this, you can tell an addict to stop what they're doing until you are blue in the face and they will not stop. (laughs) Okay. So true. Yeah. People told me stop all the time. It didn't do jack. And you told yourself that all the time, right? I told my, yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Wasn't a newsflash to you. No, it was not. I was like, you you're telling me to stop. I want to stop. And I don't know how. So addicts don't get clean when you tell them what to stop. They get clean when you tell them what to start instead. You have to equip them with the how. That's why there are programs like a 12-step program or other community programs that are out there to help addicts gain recovery because they have to start taking actions that lead to recovery. And so the problem when it comes to the mask for leaders is we keep doing the same thing that we've been doing with addicts. We say, stop wearing the mask, stop being an authentic, stop being a brand that lies to us, a company that lies to us, a leader that lies to us or won't admit your vulnerabilities. Stop doing all this. We keep telling them to stop. We're not telling them what to start instead. All this thought leadership on authenticity is great. And some of the people doing it are like my idols, but no one is equipping the layperson with how to, mm-hmm. to actually lead without a mask. How? Like, dude, I took a program that takes anyone that's slamming dope into their veins on a daily basis, regardless of your education level, regardless of your income level, regardless of your literacy level, regardless of your ratio, your racial, your social, your sexual, it does not matter what country you're in, what language you're in, what city you're in. It is a step-by-step process that can allow anyone to stop using drugs. And so what we need is a step-by-step process that allows anyone to live and lead mask-free. And we just haven't had that. And it's been hiding, in my opinion, in the subset of of the society that we have a tendency to think of as the opposite of leaders, the addicts. And what I would say is, in order to recover, every addict is taught how to lead themselves. We focus so Mm -hmm. much on leading others but they are taught how to lead themselves, not by themselves, but they are taught how to lead themselves. And they use these three principles to do it. And that's why I think that addicts all around the world that are in recovery have a professional superpower that you can't get as a Harvard MBA. Yeah, so true. And you talk about these these groups that you lead and really any addict has their group, right? Whether they're 12-step program, they have some form of community they can turn to, a sponsor, whatever it is, where they can sort of reset and you know, with those principles that they want to lead themselves by. And obviously the model, you know, from the Latter-day Saint perspective, we have a great model of of an elders quorum, you know, a men's group or a relief society where they meet on a regular basis, you know, in a world before COVID, but, you know, which will happen in the future, but they meet regularly and that should be an opportunity for everybody to reset their mask. But oftentimes what we do is we, we see it as just another opportunity to put another layer of the mask on because yep. we don't want to be real, you know, that vulnerability just doesn't feel comfortable. And so let's just get through this next hour and go home. And, and then I'll look like a good boy that goes to church, you know? And uh, so it's, we have the structure right in front of us a lot of the time, but we're not. And like you said, we, sometimes we just don't know how to go about this. Right. Well, I didn't know. So like I, t- I tell a story in my book and I told it in my Ted talk too, about how my first six months I would go to my 12 step meetings and So first of all, it's a very humbling experience to have to say that you're a drug addict and go hang out with a bunch of drug addicts in order to recover (laughs) from drug addiction. Like there should be no ego left when you're done with that, but leave it to me as a drug addict to still have enough ego to try to manage perception and wear my mask. 
And so I would go into my meetings and I would try to, you know, in, in 12 step meetings, like we share, like you get a f- five minutes to share if you choose to in a lot of formats. And so when I would share, I would like plan what I was saying. I would like try, I didn't even know what a Ted talk was, but I would like try to make it like this great Ted talk or whatever. And I would try to impress people with what I was saying. And that really hurt me. And I, and I'll never forget that, you know, one night I had all this pain that I had from, you know, being clean and I didn't know how to deal with life and life's terms. And I knew that I couldn't front when I went in there. So I went in there and it was the first share that I did. that was totally messy and all over the place. And at the end of the meeting, this like really tough biker named Tim that was like dressed in head to toe, Harley leather and like had this beard and he had a bike outside. I was terrified of Tim. He comes up to me and like, I feel him like grab me and I'm like, holy crap, this guy hates me and he's going to like punch me in the face. And he says, great share tonight. And I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? That was the, that was like the worst share I've ever done. He's like, that's the first real share you've ever done. And in here, and I don't, I don't necessarily say this in the story and he didn't say this, but in a 12 step meeting or in any environment where there's designed in a small group fashion, like what you're describing, where you can be vulnerable. What I find is people take a mask on and there's another, they take a mask off and there's another one underneath. Yeah. And it takes time to peel off the layers. And so like he told me, he said, the only way you're going to stay clean is if you rip them all off. And this is where you do that. And the thing for me was that was the first time told me that anyone told me that in this environment, being vulnerable is cool. Like suddenly, like I think about like the traditional high school challenge where you've got like the jock that like beats up everybody that's like really tough that'll never admit that they have any problems. Suddenly the complete inverse of that is the popular kid. And so the vulnerability that we experienced in a 12-step program suddenly became the strength. It was a complete inverse. It took time to learn. But even today, in my book, I talk about another story where just recently I was scared to share that I was struggling as a new father. You know, here I was an old timer now in this group and 16 years later, and I didn't want to tell people that I was having trouble connecting to my wife and kid. And I thought, oh, I'm supposed to have all my stuff together. So I don't think we ever stopped getting the internal message that we need to hide ourselves. And so I think as a result, we are at risk of hiding ourselves in every situation, including ones that are designed to let us be our true selves. And I think that's why you need a specific system and methodology to be able to do it. Yeah. So what advice would you have for individuals like an elders quorum president? You know, he's a leader of a men's group that meets every Sunday. They get together to talk about, you know, gospel principles and, you know, spiritual topics. And they can see it's obvious everybody's wearing, you know, masks as far as, you know, these masks that you talk about. They're hiding behind, you know, different poses and things. And so how does one even begin to start facilitating that group that isn't, you know, obviously that you walk into a 12 step group, you sort of know what you're going to get. Right. And so people are, are ready to maybe open up a little bit, but what about those groups that that's not been the status quo? You know, how do you even begin to change that culture? So that's a great question. And I have a really great approach and tool that you can use. I'm going to set it up this way. When you were in school, I assume like most of us, like, was there someone that you thought was just like the most beautiful person you wish you could go out on a date with them, but there's no way they would ever go out on a date with you. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So everybody listening, them, I think. <laughs> think of that person and try not to cry because we all have that person. Right. Imagine being on that on a date with that person as a kid, you're at the movie theater and you're thinking, oh my, I can't believe that I'm on this date. And oh, there's, you know, this for me, this girl's so pretty and I, oh, I would love to be able to kiss her and, and all this kind of stuff. And she looks at me and starts leaning in and it looks like she's leaning in for a kiss 
Uh-huh. And I want everybody that's listening right now to imagine if that happened, the person that you think is beyond your, your grasp that you think is so great. And they just turn at you and they start leaning in. Most of us feel in that moment, not excitement. We feel fear. Hmm. And the reason that we feel fear is what if I'm misreading the situation? What if she doesn't actually want to kiss me and I close my eyes and I lean in and she's just trying to lean down to get her purse. And now I completely look like an idiot. That's (laughs) what vulnerability is. And so going back to the elder, I would say Simon Sinek, who I love, he says leaders eat last, vulnerable leaders go first. Mm. I would say that what they need to do is they need to identify the mask that they're wearing, the one that's holding them back and share that with the people around them. Because if I was on that date and she turned to me and said, Hey, I want you to know that I want to kiss you but I'm really scared that you're going to reject me. So I'm going to come in for a kiss now. How awesome would I feel? How safe would I feel closing my eyes and leaning in? (laughs) Right. Yeah. She gets to set the tone in that situation. Well, leaders get to set the tone for the entire room by how they lead themselves. And if they have the capacity to identify the mask, surrender the outcome and do the uncomfortable work, then they empower everyone around them to do this. And so practically speaking, I have in my program and on my website, actually anybody can take it. It's a free assessment. The mask assessment's five minutes. And so what I tell leaders to do is they can go on this website. They can take the mask assessment. Five minutes later, they will have what mask is holding them back, what their authenticity percentage is, and a report that describes what their characteristics are at this level of authenticity. And so what I would encourage a leader to do is to take that and then share it with the people that they're leading and say, so the mask that I wear is saying yes, when I could say no, I have a tendency to do it when it comes to people that are asking for my help or like, or, you know, whatever they, they go into it, they read the report and they do that with true vulnerability, not like trying to make it look good, right? Like not in the sandwich where they spin it with a positive, like no positive, just pain. If they can do that the degree to which they have led themselves empowers everybody else to do the same because now they're doing what 12 step sponsors do. 12 step sponsors are the best leaders in the world because they don't lead with strength. They lead with vulnerability. Yeah. And, and they've, uh, you know, oftentimes gone down similar journeys and so that they can relate to that pain as well. Right. And that stimulates more sharing. What about those, you know, sometimes I hear, you know, vulnerability and authenticity, it's sort of the the fad, right? Everybody talks about it and I'm just going to be me and open. But some people say, well, maybe there's some negative of being too, too open, too out there. How do you respond to those, those critiques? I remember when I was working at Dell, they were a Fortune 50 company and it was my first job in recovery. And I remember thinking when someone asked me why I don't drink or why I'm here from California and Nashville, Tennessee, what am I going to tell them? And my sponsor encouraged me to tell them the truth. And so I would tell them that I'm a recovering drug addict. And I felt a tremendous amount of vulnerability with that. Some people would call that an overshare. Some people would call that putting myself at unnecessary risk. And what I would say is, is that I was vulnerable and it did hurt me. I had a guy that I was competing with that spread a rumor that I had relapsed. And that was my biggest fear. That hmm. someone would spread a rumor that I had relapsed and therefore I wouldn't be able to get promotions because no one would hire, want to hire someone that had relapsed or that they couldn't count on. And you know what? It didn't hurt me. I spent two weeks terrified and my sponsor pointed out, hey, nothing bad has actually happened. Everything, you know, the worst things that are happening are happening in your head, not in reality. 
And now I'm on this podcast with you talking about a book where I'm talking about being a drug addict. So mm. I think it worked out pretty well for me. People yeah. are desperate for people to be vulnerable. Now, I some people confuse authenticity with transparency and honesty. Mm. And those are two different things. So rigorous authenticity is not rigorous transparency. There are things that I keep private because that adheres to my value system. Hmm. So my wife would prefer that I not share everything that we talk about. Right. So that's not me hiding stuff from the world. That's me being true to the privacy of honoring my wife. If it was left up to me, I would share everything, but I'm trying <laughs> to honor my, my wife. And so transparency is not authenticity. Um, honesty is not authenticity. Honesty is something you do. It's a transaction. You either tell the truth or you don't. Authenticity is something that you live. It's do you live according to your values? And some of us have values that are different. A lot of my fellow recovering addicts don't identify themselves as addicts publicly. Them not doing that is adhering to their value system. But for me, I wanted to live out in the open. So if I had lied to that guy and said I wasn't an addict, I would have been not authentic. I wouldn't have been true to me. So the reason I say this is we are dynamic humans that have different values and our values are co-created both with us and with the people around us. So even if being true to me is to be naked, I'm pretty sure if I run around naked downtown, they're going to arrest me and I'm going right. to find out that that value doesn't work for me. And so I'm going to have to work on that value. A lot of people say, is, is being rigorously authentic just a permission to be really mean to people? And the answer is no. And, and I'll, tell, I'll tell this really quick story to illustrate this. Yeah. When I was in rehab, I had a counselor that sat me down and said, you're not responsible for anyone else's feelings. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. I don't have to worry about other people's feelings. This is great. <laughs> and so I felt this freedom. And so there was this guy in rehab. His name was Gant. Gant, if you're out there, I love you and I'm sorry. Um, and I terrified. I, I was so mean to him. I was so mean. I picked on him to make myself feel big and to make him feel small. And I completely made him cry. And he went into his room and he felt so small and I hurt him so badly. And then the counselor comes up to me and goes, Michael, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? I'm not responsible for his feelings. You, you told me that I'm not responsible for his feelings. And he said, yeah, but you're responsible for whether people like, uh, I'm trying not to swear. You're responsible for whether you're an a-hole or not is what he said. Mm -hmm. You're responsible for whether you are a bully and a mean person or not. You have personal responsibility. And so for us, this isn't just licensed to share anything and everything and to radically overshare and to be mean to people. It's to identify what your value system is and execute to your value system. I genuinely want to be open about being an addict. I want to be kind to people. And I don't want my wife's desire for privacy in some areas to be violated. As yeah. a result, I have my own approach to how I share things. Yeah. And my mind goes to just the concept of, you know, especially in leadership, this concept of love, like when you are the, the leader who's striving to connect with people authentically and show love and, and connection, like even when you, those moments of authenticity lead to individuals feeling in ways you didn't intend, they know, generally speaking, it's coming from a place of love and they're not going to retract or feel bullied or, you know, those types of things. So to what you just said, Google did this study. They have a, re, they have a part of their organization called Rework that does a lot of analysis on high-performing teams. And so they did this study where they wanted to understand across like their 200 highest performing teams. And they analyzed 180 characteristics, something like that. 
they wanted to know what are the characteristics of our highest performing teams. And they identified the top 15. And if the number one characteristic was a concept of psychological safety. Mm -hmm. Now, when I think of psychological safety, I think the ability to be your true self vulnerably, no matter the cost. And to illustrate how you do that, as a leader, if you tell someone all of your challenges and then you go work on them and they can see you working on them, you create a space where they can do the same and then they are welcomed. And so like one of the examples I always talk about is companies will always talk about how like they're a big family Mm -hmm. and you know, oh, we're one big family. And I'm always like, no, you're not. That's a, that's a freaking lie. If you're a family, then that means my family is like yours. So let, let's work this out. So my daughter, her name is Amaret. She's 18 months old. So, you know, you flash forward, she's six years old. She's on the soccer field. She's not playing very well. And I pull her aside and I go, you know what, Amaret? I just don't know that you're performing to the degree that we expect. I'm going to put you on a performance improvement plan. And if within 90 days, if you haven't improved in your ability to play <laughs> soccer, yeah. I'm not sure if we're the right family for you. Or let's like, let's go further down the line. So she's 11 years old and the pandemic is hit. Coronavirus is hit and income for our family is dramatically reduced. I take Emirate into her office, which is actually her bedroom with stuffed animals. And I sit down on her bed and I say, Emirate, no fault of your own, but unfortunately revenue for our family is down. So your position in our family has been eliminated. And so here is a severance package of 12 snack packs. And we'll find a, we've hired a placement service to help you find a family that can afford your increased eating habits as you enter your teenage years. And we're very grateful for your service, but good luck. The thing is, is that we get safety and vulnerability when other people are their true selves around us. Because one of the things that I say to people is all of us have someone that we trust the most in this world and it isn't our boss. It's someone in our friend or family. And I guarantee you one of the reasons why is they've allowed us to walk with them as they have had their struggles. And that's what families do. And they love you unconditionally. Now it work. You can never truly love people unconditionally in the sense of you can't guarantee they're going to have income and all that kind of stuff, but you can get dang close if you honor their fact that they're a human by acknowledging that you are too. And when you acknowledge that you are and you make it safe for them to be able to talk about their weaknesses and challenges, you're able to create this concept of psychological safety at work because at least they don't feel like they need to hide their mistakes or their misgivings or their growth edges or whatever it is. Yeah, that's, that's a great, great perspective and, and uh, way to look at it. And I imagine going back to, you know, you talk about if a leader wants to stimulate vulnerability, they have to lead out and start being vulnerable. And it's important to realize that when they may do that the very first time, they may be in a group that where there's not psychological safety. And I don't know if there's anything you could do beforehand to stimulate psychological safety before you get vulnerable, but it sounds like the only way to stimulate psychological safety is to start getting vulnerable. And then people will say, oh, this is a safe place. I'm going to get vulnerable, right? And so- yeah, it may be awkward and uncomfortable at first, but that's that's where you begin. Well, I mean, so that's what leadership is. Yeah. I'm fairly certain that things were pretty awkward for the founding fathers of the United States of America during the Boston Tea Party. I'm fairly certain that things were awkward for Martin Luther King. Yeah, like leaders take unpopular stances despite the potential negative outcomes. And so, when we're talking about if we think it is a buzzword, but we aren't seeing it, if we think that 
authenticity and leadership is a good thing, then it is our responsibility as leaders to incur the friction and the challenges in making a safe space for everybody to do the same. Because if we aren't, we are not leading ourselves because we're denying our own true humanity. Yeah, I mean, the first ones through the door always get their nose bloodied, but they create progress that impact millions. And so right now, if you're a leader out there and you're like, I want to be vulnerable, but I'm scared, choose between being a follower and a leader. Mm. Lead yourself. Yeah. Lead yourself. And then in doing so, inspire thousands of other people. You never know who's watching you. Yeah. You never know who's watching you that matters. Inspire other people to do the same. Right now, I got up and I did a TED Talk called Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do. And I was terrified to do it. I was terrified to say that being a drug addict was a good thing. I was terrified that saying this is what leaders should do. And it became the number one TED Talk in the history of TEDx Nashville. And there was nothing I could do to promote it. It was just a TEDx video that went viral. Mm-hmm. It's got over 1.7 million views. And I get leaders from over 25 countries saying, no one ever taught me this, but I want this for me and I want this for my people. And so I'll tell you, people want this change. They want authenticity and leadership, but in order for them to get it, you're going to have to do what drug addicts do. Yeah. And just like uh, any drug addicts recovery, like it, it gets messy at times, right? Because I'm thinking of the, the leader who thinks, well, yeah, okay, I want to get vulnerable, but I can already pinpoint two or three people who the minute they get vulnerable, they're going to disagree. And then there's some you know, conflict in, in the group. And, and I guess those types of things you just have to work through as you're stimulating this vulnerable culture. I mean, yeah. Any, do you follow basketball? Sure. So Phil Jackson was one of the best NBA coaches of all time, right? And he yeah, managed yeah. two teams. He beat our jazz twice. Thanks for reminding me. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, You're good. As a, as a Lakers and Warriors fan, I'm double sorry. So, um, <laughs> but he had tremendous friction and tremendous personalities that he had to manage. Leadership is how do you manage the hard things? It's not... If leadership was how do you manage the easy things, everybody would do it and we wouldn't need leaders. So like, you know, and yes, you might open up a can of worms like, oh, Sally doesn't like working with Bobby, but that's going to create a really uncomfortable leadership team meeting. Well, I'm fairly certain that I'm not the first leadership coach to tell you that everybody getting on the same page is a good thing for the business. That's like saying we should ignore the fact that there's a pandemic and just keep you know, making the same quantity of widgets that we were making before, because that's negative news that we don't want to deal with. Like, no, in a business, in leadership and in organization, leaders are the ones that take the challenges head on, embrace the friction and lead through it and facilitate other people's growth in the process. And that's what I say. We are seriously, we are generating, we aren't generating leaders anymore. We're generating followers. Like that is what we are generating in this world. We have leaders that have millions of followers on Instagram or whatever. And so they're consumed with what their followers are going to think. They're not leading, they're being led. And so the real question is, are you able to tap in, especially for your audience, tap into your faith? You're just like a drug addict, man. You have a skill that most people don't have. Tap into that faith, leverage it and use it to freaking lead so that other people know what real leadership looks like. Yeah. That's so helpful and encouraging. And I think it's good to just warn people that, you know, you may take these steps to be vulnerable and you may think, well, yeah, then we just like lock arms and sing Kumbaya the rest of the time, right? Like, because someone may try this and be like, man, that just blew up in my face. Like it's been awkward for weeks. And I guess that didn't work. Like, no, it's working, but you have to get through this process to establish that culture and, and you're on the right path when it, when it does seem messy. 
Yeah, that's why do uncomfortable work is so important. When the process of these principles become the goal and you surrender outcomes, you can do anything. But as long as you're worried about actually having to experience uncomfortable work, you will avoid it. When you say part of what I do is I let go of the results and I do the uncomfortable work anyway, and regardless, it's a victory, that's when real magic happens. Again, leadership, you have to expect that there are going to be challenges. And yes, I know like, you know, we all want the movie where you work it out. It's kumbaya. It's all good. Yeah. But like, that's just not like nobody actually has that life. That's why it's called a movie. And it's not actually, it's not, it's not called <laughs> yeah. life. Like we, we all have to work through this stuff. And I do want to give people like permission to do it messy and imperfectly. So like one of the things that I'll say, like, so here I am, this guy that wrote this book, built this mass free program from scratch. Like I've done all this stuff. And then the pandemic hits and I put on a mask. I hit a weakness with my team. I didn't know how we were going to respond and pivot to the pandemic. And I remember like going, spending two weeks, like not communicating to my team. Cause I was a little, I, I got sick. I actually got sick. And then I was just really locked up. And I remember one of my teammates said, you know, I wish you had just told me that you didn't know. And so I don't want to say that I'm like the end all. I'm not, but I'm just going to say as someone that's been doing this stuff intentionally for 17 years and that teaches thousands of people, I continue to struggle with it. And so the goal isn't to take all of the breaths of oxygen that you will need for the rest of your life and have a really great breath in one meeting. The goal is to find a different way to do things slowly. And I use yeah. the oxygen example because people always want the trick, the book, the podcast, the workshop that's going to change everything right now and they'll never have to do it again. You have to take breaths of air the rest of your life. Yeah. And this is just, and some of them are going to be harder or easier than others. For leading with this stuff, it's going to be messy. It's going to be imperfect, but do it anyway. Yeah, love it. So this third principle, you know, do uncomfortable work. I, I really appreciate that, you know, the emphasis on uncomfortable because- Man, you give Latter-day Saints, you give us a tornado, a pandemic, a earthquake, like we'll show up in mass, we'll have our yellow vests yep. on and we'll get to work. Like we we know how to do hard work. Like I left my home at 19 years old to serve for two years, yep. you know, mission, learn a different language, knock on doors every day. Like we can do hard work, but we sometimes get lost in that thinking, yeah, that's where the gospel is. Like, you know, the widow needs to help moving out. Like, all right, team, let's get together and go do that. And we can all do that. But the uncomfortable work is, yeah, but how willing are you to really have a real discussion in elders quorum or in church or like, and that's where the practice is. That's the muscle that you need to work on. And a lot of leaders, they think, well, as long as we're serving people, we're good, right? Like, no, like this is where you need to start leading yourself and your quorum is do that uncomfortable work of authenticity and having real conversations and discussions, right? Yeah. I really appreciate what you said about like, we'll show up and we'll do the hard work. Um, one of the things we say in recovery from uh, drug addiction is um, act, as recovering addicts are actually really excellent in a crisis. We fall apart in the small things though. And so an example <laughs> yeah. would be, I remember, you know, starting a, a business with my wife, this business and us dealing with some pretty significant blows at the beginning. And when we dealt with like these really significant blows, I was able to respond re like really quickly and strategically and be able to solve for it. But she's like, oh, I love how you respond in a crisis. I love how you're able to like, you know, just work through it and figure it out. But let's talk about a Brita pitcher of water for a second. Okay. One day, she's over there. She's laughing right now. One day <laughs> I come home and I'm very particular about my water and she has put a Brita filter in our Brita pitcher. And I asked her if she had rinsed it out to make sure that the carbon was out. And she right. said, no. 
and I completely lost my mind. <laughs> and so we had this whole argument over a freaking, my fear of having carbon in my water. And so leading myself, the harder thing was not adjusting to significant blows for our business. The hard thing was after I realized that I completely lost it and I'd acted a fool, going to her and saying, I'm sorry. And I have, instead of just saying, I'm sorry, because like in recovery, we learn not to say, I'm sorry. We learn to make amends, which means we amend our behavior. We understand why it happened so that we can try to not do it again. And I was like, I just absolutely have a weird thing around water. And it's so, I'm so, I feel so embarrassed to tell you this, but I walk around scared that there's going to be carbon in my water. I don't know what happened to me as a child, what made, what made this happen, but I just lost it. And it doesn't mean it's okay. I got to work on it, but I'm sorry. And, and I could have swept it under the rug. I could have tried to make it her fault. I could have minimized it. I could have just said, Hey, I'm sorry. My bad. I was having a bad day, but I chose to fully lead into sharing my weakness and having that difficult conversation, like, you know, double up on two of the, two of the four masks right then and there. And that's like a really simple moment, but that's a moment where I'm really great at dealing with, you know, the economic recession and all the customers going away or us having an, in the, when the TED talk blew up, us having this huge influx of business, but you put carbon in my water, boy, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> and, 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 and that doesn't fulfill my identity as a strong leader that can handle everything. Right. And, but I had right. to lean into that. And so I think that, you know, People are going to have this stuff show up in different places and different dimensions of their life. The real question is when you don't practice the, these principles or you act a fool, what do you do next? And to me, the answer is always, I can always go reapply these principles. So if I tried to have a difficult conversation and it went poorly, then I can practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome, do the uncomfortable work and talk about why that conversation didn't go well. I can yeah. always reapply these principles. And when you really get into the mastery program, it becomes muscle memory and you can learn how to apply those three principles in one minute a day in aggregate and it can change your life, but it just, it takes practice. Yeah, no, I love that contrast where, yeah, we'll, we'll step up to any big problem or crisis or earthquake or tornado, but leadership is oftentimes just in the little nuances of life and in, in the organizational culture that you just really have to, and these are great model, great principles to, to approach that. So that's awesome. Well, Michael, this has been fantastic. Any topic or point that we haven't hit on that you want to make sure we hit before we wrap up? I'm making an assumption here, and I kind of talked on this, but my experience is that the final frontier for faith is the professional world. I feel like we all have to, for those of us that have to figure out how we provide for ourselves in, in terms of, which is the majority of us, the base level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs of like shelter and food and water we have to go do something professionally to be able to make money, to be able to buy that food and water and shelter. And I know enough through people that I spend time with that in, in different religions, as well as for those of us in, in recovery, the world can compartmentalize things in a way that makes you think that it's not okay to pull a skill from one place to the other. So what do I mean by that? As an example, we're not okay with you being addicted to alcohol, but if you're addicted to work, it's fine. It's rewarded, right? So same thing. When I sponsor drug addicts, they'll be like, oh, I need to practice surrender and faith in all of these areas of my life. And then they call me and they say, hey, I'm, I'm having this problem at work. And I'm like, okay, well, like, what's the problem? Like, well, my boss is doing something that I don't, I don't like, and I don't know. I, I, I want to call him on it. Like, what would you do 
to another person that's in our 12-step program. Oh, I would just talk to them. Why don't you just talk to your boss? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, this is a professional world. These are different rules. These rules don't fully apply here. I vaguely want to apply my faith here, but I can't Mm. really apply my faith. And so part of my mission is to help recovering addicts understand that when they go to 12-step meetings or whatever they do to do their recovery, that they're building a skill that actually differentiates them in the workforce and allows them to do things that people they can't do. So I imagine that everybody that's listening to this podcast right now works diligently in their personal time on their faith. And I would just urge you, which I'm sure that a lot of you already do, but there is no nook and cranny in your professional life that doesn't deserve that faith. Hmm. Just because other people round corners and hold pockets where they go, well, I can't really practice faith here. I can't do it here because that's not how this works. I'm a politician. That's not how this works. I'm a board member. That's not how it works because that's a customer. That's not how it works because of the investor. Like Whatever the reason is, I believe that you can use that as a competitive advantage, but it goes back to when we were talking about leadership is the willingness to risk the outcome. You have to be willing to surrender the outcome in order to practice your faith at work. And so I would say that even though you know, I'm just coming at this from the recovering drug addict perspective. I have a higher power that I call God. I believe in him. And it's amazing how much I forget that he exists when I'm at work. And it's amazing <laughs> how powerful yeah. I become when I remember. Yeah. Wow. So that's that's powerful. Thought. I love that. I got one more question for you, but if people want to check out the book or your, your work and, and I love this, uh, do you call it a mask assessment that you do? Uh, yeah. The mask assessment. Yeah. yeah so I'll tell you, I think so, that'd be like a, a great like activity for like the elders quorum to do together or a church group to go through this together and compare results, right? We're seeing teams do that. The leader will take it, they'll share their results, and then they'll encourage their entire team to take it and have them share their results. And it immediately creates a, an environment of psychological safety. So there's two ways to find me. The first one is I was blessed and cursed with a hyphenated last name that makes me the only person that with Brody hyphen weight, B-R-O-D-Y hyphen weight in my name. So if you just Google Michael Brody hyphen weight, You'll find my website, michaelbrodyweight.com, and you'll find my social media stuff where I'm putting out mask-free content. But if, if, so that's if you want to get to know me or you want to learn about the book or you know the, the book can be sold at Amazon or whatever. But let's talk about you. If you want to identify the mask that's holding you back, what your authenticity percentage is, and find a way to overcome that to unlock your full potential, go to maskfreeprogram.com. Just as like it sounds, maskfreeprogram.com. You can create a free account and you can take the assessment for free. And in addition to that, I've got other resources there to help you apply these three principles to the mass that you find. Awesome. Love it. Last question I have for you, uh, Michael, is as you reflect back on, you know, your time as a leader, just maybe not necessarily even at a, a you know, a job or a company, but just leading in the realm of, of this message that uh, leading like a, a drug addict, how has being a leader in that context helped you become a better follower of God? It's tested my faith. You write a book called Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, it's going to test your faith. (laughs) It's really easy to see all the views on the TED Talk and see all the people that love the book now and go, that was good. But when I was doing it, I was scared to death. And so I think that one of the masks I wear the most is I hold back my unique perspective. Even though I'm really good at it compared to most people, I still hold it back a tremendous amount and I have so much to do. And so I wrote two versions of this book. The first version, I got to the fourth or fifth chapter and I was like, I hate this book because I was trying to write the book that I thought people would respect. I wasn't writing the book that I wanted to write. Yeah. And so I had to ask myself, 
how big is my God? And I also had to ask myself, is my ambition to impact everybody or to just do the next right thing that he's guided me to do and let go of the outcome? When I'd started writing the book, my goal was to impact one person and just have it out there because that's what I felt guided to do. And somewhere along the way, I got consumed with worrying about what everybody else would think about the book. And so I had to completely restart the writing process over. I came home one day, told my wife, I'm like, I hate my book. We have to start over. Well, actually, she was like, why don't you write the book you want to? And I gave her all the reasons I was scared. And she's like, well, don't you talk about representing your unique (laughs) perspective? Don't you talk about surrendering the outcome? Don't you talk about trusting God? I was like, yeah. She's like, well, this is your opportunity to do it. And so this is the difference between the book that I wrote the first time and the one that I wrote this time. And you mentioned it already. My favorite chapter in my book, which sounds arrogant, but it's true is the last (laughs) chapter. It's called A Tale of Two Divorces. And it was not in the first version. The first version was supposed to pump me up as an expert to make you want to believe what I have to say and follow me. Instead, I decided to end my book with a story where I stopped doing everything that I just told the reader to do. Instead of ending with, you're going to get a Ferrari, I'm great, you're going to be great. I ended with, everybody falls, including me. And here's where I threw it all the way. And it's about the year where I uh, had to sell my company divorce from my business partner and divorce from my wife all in the same year. And for me, that was a tremendous test of faith. That was like a level of test getting up and doing the TED talk and then writing that book. I've had tests like that all throughout this, but that that was a great example of it because I was completely at war between what I felt guided to do and what I thought other people would value. And it made me choose God. Now, my recovery is completely based on God. So like, it's been a great experience being able to do all the different things I talk about in my book and my TED Talk. But recently, I've really had to be willing to step out on faith and, and just trust him to a degree that I haven't before. But doing this work allows me to do that because encouraging others to surrender the outcome reminds me that I need to do it. And that concludes my interview with Michael Brody Waite. I sure hope you appreciated that as much as I did. As you could tell, I really enjoyed the conversation. His book would be a book that I would probably recommend that especially elders, quorum presidents, even relief site presidents, bishops, like this would be a great book to just review. It's on Audible. That's where I listen to it. A book to review to really understand these concepts and hear how he's applied this, you know, his recovery principles, these three principles he talked about in the interview, how we applied that in a leadership context. And I found it really inspiring, something that would help leaders. And so I would point you to his resources and his book. And again, what a phenomenal elders quorum activity or elders quorum lesson, or even when you're, if we're still, you know, I'm recording this in early July. So once this is published, I don't know where the world will be at, but if, even if we are in, you know, in, uh, in lockdown, you can lead people through this, uh, the maskless assessment and see how, if we can identify some of these masks that pop up in our quorums and organizations and, and really start inviting people to remove the mask, right? The metaphorical mask and being real. And that's how we're going to build connection and unity and growth. And that's really the basis where we'll build the kingdom of God once again. So go check out all of Michael Brody Waite resources that he mentioned in the podcast and uh, you won't regret it. And I remind you once again to text the word lead to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints Weekly Newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.